Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. Our neighbour. This we, is the photographer Ingrid Pollard. Yes, we used, to, we used to look after her hamster when she went on holiday. <laughs> so we were quite close. In this special episode, decolonial think, thinker um, Professor Paul Gilroy joins Empire Lines live in Plymouth to chart 30 years since the publication of The Black Atlantic, his influential book about race, nationalism and the formation of a trans-oceanic diasporic culture of African, American, British and Caribbean heritages. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much Hi. for joining me today. I'm delighted. It's an honour and a privilege to take part in this, and I'm endlessly thankful to everybody who has given their time and their imagination to make this event happen, and I'm really honestly humbled by that, so thank you all, uh, and especially to Francoise and to Angeline this, this evening mm -hmm. for making the mood so strong in here. I'm very grateful to Ash for giving an introduction to some of your many achievements because hopefully it means that we can get we can get into our conversation sooner. Yes, my obituary has been uh, written <laughs> by Ash and if that's if that's the minimal introduction God knows what the uh, long one might be like. So yeah. that'll be about goldfinches Paul. <laughs> um, obviously you work with Ash at the at the Black Atlantic Innovation Network at UCL. And you also, amongst your many academic roles, are founding director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Center for the Study of Racism and Racialization. You've published a great many books, but we're here to talk about the 30th anniversary of the Black Atlantic. And that's kind of where I wanted to start, because I first really engaged with the Black Atlantic through an exhibition that took place at Tate Britain a few years ago called Life Between Islands. Oh, yeah. And that was in terms of my own work and practice I studied politics at university but it was really through I've always engaged with art and culture as a way of speaking to and embodying lived experience and that's something I think that's really central in the text so I wanted to ask you how what kind of provoked you to write the Black Atlantic in the first place I suppose from your background then uh, as a professor of sociology well uh, what actually um impelled me to write Black Atlantic, and it was a lonely labor, I must say, you know, um, was the fact that I really needed to have, make sure I had a job for the future. <laughs> so it's a big stimulus. It was a big stimulus, you know, um, you know, living in a small place, being marginally employed, and, um, you know, sharing the care of two quite young children. Um, required a lot of discipline to do that, and, um, it was lonely labour because when I tried to talk to people about what I wanted the book to be, they would say things to me like, you sound like a number of men or women without sight describing parts of an elephant. <laughs> and I've never been very good at um, explaining what I'm trying to do before I actually mm. do it. So, so that was, you know, it was hard. I think what, what was really fundamental um, to, for me was the idea... Well, there are a number of things. First of all, to 
continue my opposition to nationalism, which my early work was really concerned about, all forms of nationalism. I know, you know, that not a, we can't expect to agree about our views of nationalism because there are many people believe that there are sort of righteous forms of nationalism and then there are, you know, fascistic forms of nationalism. And I think my intuition has always been that those problems with nationalism can emerge quickly, mm -hmm. even from what appears through a telescope perhaps to be the most wholesome varieties. So I wanted to continue my opposition to nationalism. And the second thing I wanted to do was to highlight the idea that if you were a black person, you could have an intellectual life, and that many people had done that previously, and that it might be important to foreground that possibility. Mm. Um, you know, I've been fortunate in my own in my own life as a young person to meet some interesting elder people like CLR James or others, you know, who were, who were kind to me. I could never get them to talk about what I wanted them to talk about, particularly him, because he just wanted to talk about what he wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. But um, I, wanted to, I wanted to demonstrate and explore and to celebrate and affirm the idea that black people could be people who had an intellectual life. And, and that means um, also, I think, having a different understanding of what an intellectual might be. I think Angeline um, mentioned Du Bois um, earlier on, and Du Bois is sort of the headmaster figure, <laughs> the, the, the school principal. Mm -hmm. um, at least in my mind, in my mind that was the case. I'm sure it's not, not true at all. Um, so, so, and he, he had always been very important to me, um, from my teenage reading, you know. But there were a lot of other people who, whose lives seemed to me to define the character of what it was to be a black intellectual in the 20th century, which is where we were then. And many of them were not people who, I mean, Du Bois is interesting because he worked for the black, he worked in the black university and then he left it. And he worked in the white university and then he left it. And he went off to have an activist life as a publisher, as an um, alchemist, of, of the struggle in ideas. Um, so he left the university completely and, and, and I met a number of other people and I was fortunate enough to abuse my role as a journalist because I was working as a journalist as well as doing my academic life to go and interview some of the people who embodied that. And that was mostly gravely disappointing actually <laughs> um, because people can make beautiful and important and interesting things and you admire them, but when you actually talk to them about what they're doing, they haven't got a clue or they're completely stoned or whatever it is. Never so, meet your heroes, that's what they yeah, say. Yeah, that's right, yeah. never meet your heroes. So, so I think, but nonetheless, I felt you had to look in other places yeah. for this idea of an, in, of an intellectual culture. And I, I tended to look towards musicians and poets. Yes. And um, I was also very, very lucky to... I mean, we've been talking so much about Palestine the last few weeks. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about someone who, more than anyone, actually defined for me what it was to be a black intellectual, and that's June Jordan, who, as far as I know, never completed a degree in any of the subjects that she studied. Mm. I think she tried to be a, an architect, she tried to be a literature person, I don't think she ever finished anything 
uh, that she, that she uh, but nonetheless was, I think her poetic voice, her command of the language, her, her essays, you know, she was someone who embodied that um, universalistic, humane, feminist spirit. And, and so I wanted to, to try to find an idea of what it was to be an intellectual that could encompass or accommodate people like her, really combative people. And I, I've been thinking about her a lot because of what's been going on. But, you know, if, if you look at the first book I wrote on my own, um, In a Black and the Union Jacket, it's got an epigraph from June. Mm -hmm. And what, what she does in that epigraph is she's defending the idea of being angry yeah. as a... I mean, actually, I, I think I've reached the end of being angry all the time. I find it a bit debilitating. But uh, in my um, in juvenilia, I suppose I felt that there was something righteous about that commitment to anger as a point of departure for critical thinking and, and political and imaginative work. Well, Paul, as expected, you've jumped ahead about six questions. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to wrangle you back just a little bit mm. because... What, for me, the Black Atlantic really does, it articulates everything you've said so perfectly, um, but it really strikes at this plurality. And something I'm, I'm struck by now, still when I go to, for instance, arts exhibitions in London, across the UK, across the world, I see things talking to the black experience. Mm -hmm. And what you really touch on is the plurality through culture. You talk as well more widely, not just about music, which we will come back to, I promise, mm. um, but about quilts. And I've seen amazing exhibitions that look at the quilt makers of G's Bend. You talk about poetry. Um, and you've kind of always been looking more at transdisciplinary or multidisciplinary artists, academics, musicians, these people who encompass all of them. Mm. And I wonder for you, looking at the Black Atlantic now, 30 years later, you've mentioned a couple of names already, but who mm. are some of the people that perhaps you've encountered, some of the artists you've encountered in that time that might feature if you were to ever, for instance, write, write a book like this again? That's a hard one. Sorry. I think... Um, I mean, the first thing I suppose I have to say in response to what you said, and you mentioned quilting and material culture and vernacular mm -hmm. forms of, of, of craft and art or activities that trouble the boundaries of what art might be. Yes. And, you know, Black Atlantic wasn't my term. And that, I always feel I have to make clear that everyone understands that. And it wasn't my title for the book. You know, actually, I've always had great sympathy for people whose titles of their books get changed by the publisher. Um, what was your title? My title was, um, oh dear, what can I, Promised Lands, that's what it was. Um, Utopia and, and Emancipation in the Black Atlantic. So, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, also I should say, when I, when I wrote the book and I gave it to the publisher, who I had been really, you know, looking forward to them publishing my book, they rejected it. So um, I was in a bit of a state, because I'd been working on this for a long time, and yeah. I was extremely upset to have the book rejected. And the publisher just said, well, I can't possibly publish this book. Um, and luckily, you know, I was able to get an American publisher to take it on, and that, that's what helped me. Um, and after that, you know, the person that helped it to sort of take off and make people read it was Edward Said. Mm who had been the president of the MLA or something like that and had made a speech at the MLA about my book in relation to the book, which was written by another poet, um, Amil Alkaleh. I don't know if people know Amil Alkaleh's poetry. Amil Alkaleh is a, a poet. Uh, he, he and I are exactly the same age, funnily enough. He teaches at the City University of New York. Um, and he had written a book called After Jews and Arabs, 
which is a kind of version of the Black Atlantic, which which speaks to the historical legacies of the Levant as mm. a region, and seeks to dissolve, you know, the reified, uh, you know, Manichaean identities that have underpinned so much violence, so much cruelty, and so much stupidity, um, so much aggression in um, in recent in recent times. So it was yes. After the book was rejected, it, it was it was curious to see it salvaged, thanks to the the good efforts of of Edward and one or two other people who who helped me publish the book. Mm. Yeah. So who you said what other artists were there? Oh well, I was just about, I was just going to say um, the the person whose idea the Black Atlantic was and is, is Robert Faris Thompson, who's a, a distinguished folklorist and art historian, who was my colleague at Yale. And um, was a, I guess, had, I don't know if he was taught by Melville Herskovitz or there was one. He, you know, he's an anthropologist and art historian and he, he spoke many African languages and um, he wrote a book called um, Flash of the Spirit. Many people would know that book, Flash of the Spirit. And the Black Atlantic was, was really his idea and he used to teach a course uh, um, about um, New York as a secret African city and he would... I mean, he, he sort of, influ- I, was, I was a big fan. I was a stan for, um, for, Ro- uh, for Robert Farris Thompson and, until I met him. And I went, I went nice to... Nice a theme here. <laughs> I, went, I went and sat in his class and I was just so happy to be in the class. And it was like Celia Cruz was coming in week two and David Byrne, well, I've got mixed feelings about it, but he was coming in week five. And, and there were hundreds of students baying and chanting and... And I just, I was appalled. So I, we, we, ne- we never, I used to, if I saw him in the street, I would cross the road and go around so I didn't have <laughs> to speak to him. But I, of the work, I loved the work that he yeah. did. And he's such an important and forgotten figure. And, um, you know, they say traditions begin when, when you choose your ancestors. That's what Raymond Williams says. I'm not mm. sure, I wouldn't have chosen Robert Ferris Thompson, but I owe him something profound mm. because he, he opened up a world for me and I remember watching after Black Atlantic came out or, or after I finished writing it he made a documentary for the BBC which you can still find in the archive if you can have access to that sort of archive and it was um, about New York as a secret African city mm. and it really I mean it was a beginnings I suppose it was just beginning to be a time when uh, people were using the new technologies and interesting ways and you know um so you could go online and see how people get kept ants off their altar that they had in their home to worship Yemanja or whoever that orisha might be or whatever it was so yeah I, I owe i owe him a lot for giving a kind of attention a loving attention a, a loving uh, custodianship really of the archive of african descended people in the new world although his version of it was one really which only moved in one direction Mm. it was essentially that older anthropology which says this African stuff and it gets in the horrible most horrible circumstances into this vector which takes it somewhere else and then it gets out of that vector and establishes itself in the soil and grows up and that's culture and that idea of, of how things move, how things travel, how ideas, how people, how art 
moves from one place to another was not satisfactory for me. I, I wanted a more complex ecology of culture and belonging and creativity than that. And that means not just moving in one direction, but moving in several directions and several stages, making a different kind of map. Um, you know, when, as a child, I'd been a reader of Rachel Carson, and yes. uh, particularly her work on the sea. Yes. And, of course, being here, it's interesting to think about the currents. I know in the show there's a lot of the forensic maritime account of, of successive, um, successive horrors of, the, of Mare Nostrum. But, um, you know, there are also questions of how the currents make certain journeys possible and, and uh, foster certain, um, you know, uh, ge uh, geopolitical possibilities. Mm -hmm. So that's a good reason to be here having this conversation. Yes. Uh, I remember listening to an interview with you once where you, you talked about being a child of, Ra of Rachel Carson, which I mm. found really powerful. Mm. Another uh, writer that you reference in the book is Toni Morrison and mm. Beloved. And you mentioned just before um, about how when you were younger you were very empowered in a way by anger, but as you've, as you've grown older you've, you've looked towards love and towards joy. And I know um, that you, you speak a lot about bell hooks and the influence that she has had on your work as well. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously music um, is something that, you know, summons love and joy and death and fuses these things together. So, you know, I do, uh, I, you know, aspire to a certain relationship with music, not just as someone who writes about it, but as someone who listens attentively. Yeah. Ash mentioned Pauline Olveros, who was an, I would also stand for her, actually, for a while. <laughs> And, um, I don't like, by the way, how as a young person I feel that Stan is getting attributed to me. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, 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 I've listen, just about learnt how to post a tweet. I love Eminem. I love, I've always, I always love liked Eminem. him. I know June didn't like him. She wrote a poem about Eminem. But I, I, I remember teaching a student from Chicago who had been part of some mega rap battle in Chicago in, um, in the, in, just when Eminem was coming along and who had had seen, uh, uh, witnessed a battle in which Eminem was um, freestyling and Eminem felt that he was, uh, he had been poorly treated because he had lost out in this, you know, battle of, of wordplay. Yeah. And my student was sitting with him on the step outside and he was feeling aggrieved. And he turned to my student and said, you know, I just don't think I can... I can make this white rap thing work for me. <laughs> so, I, so I remember that. Um, so that's, yes, he, in a way, as a, as a cautionary tale, really, yeah. I suppose, of a certain kind. Um, so why were you talking about that? Oh, yes. I was asking Sorry. you about, yes. about love yes. and joy. Yes, yes. Jo well, joy, um, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, yes, love, love. love. June, of course, was the person who put radical love you know, at the centre of her cosmopolitan political commitments. Mm. And, and that's, I think, because there's no, with her, there's no, there's no space between her, you know, polysexuality, her, her love, love of humankind, her love of, of humanity, her sort of planetary aspirations for improving the world. I mean, I think... If you, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know how much people know about her, but one of her architectural experiments was to imagine an alternative way of um, 
reconstructing Harlem after the riots of 1964. And she, I think, I only ever spoke to her about this once very briefly, would resist the idea that her alternative plan for the riot zone was something that could be called utopian. Whereas I think I like the idea of utopianism mm. and utopias, and especially when they're, in a sense, concrete utopias like this envisioning of an alternative city. So her argument about the city, and she wrote actually, she wrote a little novel um, for, for young people, for young readers. Um, no, the title of it evades me, but it'll come in a moment, which is really about the traffic and about the grid as sort of symptoms of a certain way of organizing space that's utterly destructive. And the utopian space in this novel is an old cemetery where her young lovers retreat. Mm -hmm. And uh, her alternative plan for the reformed and reconstituted post-riot city of Harlem involved building upwards from the grid in a series of conical spiral structures that broke the, um, what she felt was the, the violence, really, of the, of the grid system in American cities. And there are some beautiful drawings of these massive conical structures built over the grid of the Harlem streets. And I think her imagined future for it was that there would be a kind of gradual, um, what's the word, migration upwards into the sky in these large conical structures that would accommodate an alternative way of holding that space that was in tune with the ecological imperatives of a different variety, um, away from the automobile, um, outside of the pollution of that. And when she, when she came to England, I think, I don't know if she came again after that, but she and Martin Ryle from the Green Party and Danny Cohn-Bendit, who was then in the Parliament as a representative of the German Green Party, and myself, we did a, a meeting together at Battersea Arts Centre, funnily enough, because I don't think there was any space in the university that would have accommodated the four of us um, to talk about, about what green politics might mean from that perspective. So, so uh, yeah. Um, utopia, yes, and, 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 and it's not just about seeing and imagining alternative possibilities, it's also about hearing them arrive. So mm -hmm. I would also like to express my thanks and gratitude to the musicians who have enlivened our day, mm -hmm. um, because they, they tell us, what, or they invite us to listen attentively and to be careful about what we can hear approaching as well as what we can see approaching. Let's talk about music then, because you mentioned journalism. You, you not only play music, but you've written about music before and how black figures are represented, even on album covers, things like that. Mm. And we've obviously just had that amazing performance by Angeline. I remember hearing a, another interview that you, or rather a presentation that you gave once where you said, until I met Ingrid Pollard, I thought it was just me talking about your love well, of folk, folk music from an early age. Mm. Well, Ingrid, Ingrid was my neighbour, our neighbour. This uh, we, is the photographer, Ingrid Pollard. Yes, we used, to, we used to look after her hamster when she went on holiday. <laughs> so we were, quite, we, were quite, we were quite close. And of course, she uh, was someone who had a great love of, the, of England, you know, mm -hmm. but was also someone who, like me, was very 
skeptical, very uncomfortable with the notion of a green and pleasant land, which mm. is still, you know, for so many people, the starting point for uh, thinking about the ecologies of belonging. Um, I mean, you know, you, you, you asked me about, we're supposed to be talking about music, and, but you asked me something about Morrison and I didn't say anything about her. So let me just say one thing about her that speaks to this point about music, which is that um, she emphasized very strongly that um, what she had learned from musicians as a writer was that you had to make what you did on the page appear to be spontaneous and unrehearsed when it was actually something that you had grafted over. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I, I don't know if our young musicians would agree with this, but mostly it seems to me from my own practice as a musician that you never improvise something that you haven't rehearsed 10,000 times. Yeah. So the art of it is not, is not the, in the, rep, it, the art of it is in the way the repetition creates possibilities for you. Um, so yeah, and that's why we're improvising, and why I'm, I'm and why I'm getting lost. No, because no. because improvising is really for me. I, I think it was Phil Lesh from the Grateful Dead who said that improvising is like it's like a, a sailing voyage, where you 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 sail towards an island, and then you get off and explore the island, and then you get back in your boat and you go to the next island. Mm. See, that's interesting because I think of improvising as a form of as a form of listening. Improvising is oh, so yes. much about listening Absolutely. to the person who follows you and the person who you are to follow. Mm. Um, but anyway, we were talking about folk music. Now, yeah, you're, now you're throwing me off track. Attentiveness. No, yes. no, no. To, <laughs> yes, actually, because obviously to be able to be uh, a creative um, musician, you do have to listen very, very carefully. And mm. actually, I, I think one of the things that worries me about the, the, the nature of our crisis that we're in is that people are so crushed by the attention economy that they lose yeah. the ability to, to listen with the intensity that's required um, if you want to get anything out of life, mm. not just make art or write books or whatever it is, you know. And learning. And learning. I think I'm going to put us back in that ship, though, off this okay. island and steer us back towards the one that I did originally want mm. us to go towards. Oh, sorry. But we were talking about folk music. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And we've also been talking about artists, academics, people who practice across, quote-unquote, disciplines. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to know your thoughts about something like Calypso itself as a kind of folk music. Well, it's all folk. And didn't Louis Armstrong say, you know, it's all folk music because mm. you never saw any any animals doing this. You know, mm. it's it's a, it's all folk that, that do it. So, I mean, obviously, I you know I was raised in a in a household in as much as I was raised in a household, and the things about that I don't really want to say with the camera rolling, so I won't <laughs> say any more about that. But there was a, certainly a '78 record player that played calypsos, yeah. And so one of the things I grew up with was listening to Calypsos on 78 records. And um, what did I think about that? I thought it was great, you know? Mm. And is it true that you listened to a lot of music growing up because you weren't watching television? Well, my parents... Um, yes, my parents didn't have a television mm. for a long time. 
Um, so I wasn't exposed to television at times when the, what's the word, prehistory of the attention economy might have derailed me a bit. Um, on the other hand, you know, I did sneak upstairs to the other flats above where we lived to go and watch other people's televisions. And I was infected by the, you know, viral culture of, mm -hmm. of TV um, as a result of the things that were going on in the playground and school and things of that sort. So I wasn't outside of the world of TV completely, but we didn't have a television until, until later on in my life. And my, my, my companion, you know, as many people in my, in my age group, was the radio, you know, and um, that's fine too, you know. You've spoken before about some of the different musicians and musical styles mm. that have influenced you, and you've written mm. quite extensively about jazz and blues. Mm. Mm. I was wondering, actually, if you could talk a bit about Nadia Katus. Oh. And tell, right. tell the audience who, who she right, is. Right, of course. Um, well, one of the things I... Uh, Ingrid Pollard and myself, and uh, my, my daughter, who's a curator and musician and artist and academic... Sounds we, like you should write about her. What, well, my daughter? Yeah. Oh, no. no? Okay. <laughs> no, I, I won't be doing that. Okay. Um, anyway, we, we were given the chance by the MK Gallery in Milton Keynes to curate um, a day of music and reflection and collaboration around the figure of, of, the, of the black person in the British uh, countryside. I mean, we were early adopters, let's say, of what's become an interesting cult, you know, with, uh, with many... Uh, um, beloved friends at the Centroid. Anyway, we, we did that, and, um, and and my contribution to that was really just to, just to experiment um, a little bit by by thinking about what it might mean to think about some different ancestors for the British folk music tradition in the 20th century than the ones who we were conventionally um, given, or to see a com complex post-colonial story, and colonial uh, mm -hmm. to some extent story, of, of a vernacular and folk musical tradition in this, these islands um, that was inclusive. And, inclusive in, uh, and, and so that's really what we did. And, and there were a number of figures I spoke about. Doris Henderson, who I've been blessed to see perform um, when I was a young teenager at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969, I'd gone to see Bob Dylan, I was 13. And the first night we got there, Doris was on. So Doris was wonderful to see her and hear her sing. She's a very beautiful voice. Um, and Nadia Katus was another of these figures, um, somebody who had... Um, she was, a, she was a, a volunteer in World War II. She came from Belize, what's become Belize, British Honduras. She came as a volunteer and joined the uh, military forces of this country. And I think actually she was trained in Newton Abbott to, be a, to become a, a physical training instructor in the Air Force. And um, after she went back to um, uh, British Honduras, as it was then called, uh, to work in education there and um, decided she would come back here again. She was briefly a, a student of sociology, I believe, and economics at the London School of Economics which obviously chastened her in some of the ways it chastened me yeah. because she left after that quite quickly and, and went to assume her career as a folk singer and actor. And she was, you know, I don't know if anyone here is old enough to have watched Emergency Ward 10, these sort of English 
English TV programs of the 60s and so on, she was often uh, featured mm -hmm. in these things. And she recorded a number of, of records as a, a folk singer, and she, 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 made, uh, she was also a poet. She wrote some interesting poetry. And she's still alive, Nadia, actually, although she, she's um, not able to discuss her life with anybody. But uh, her, her son, Mike Lindup, is a keyboard player of level 42, and he does a lot to keep his mother's legacy alive and to keep her, um, keep her uh, alive in the memory of, um, of this country, really. Um, yeah, so Nadia interested me very much because when she sang English folk music, um, you can hear this, you can find her music in, you know, the internets. She... She sang it with her Honduran accent audible. She, and she audible. didn't act with that accent, did she? When she acted? Uh, yeah, well, I think sometimes she did act with it, and sometimes yes. So, so she's an interesting, interesting, interesting figure that had been seemed to me to have been forgotten. So we wanted to to bring her back, and Doris back, and Davy Graham back, and Dave, you know the very innovative guitarist who um, was part of. Martin Carthy, I'm sure many people know Martin Carthy. Martin Carthy was um, Nadia's backing guitarist and for a period. I got a photograph of them in the bandstand at Parliament Hill, the old bandstand there, um, together performing. And, um, and Davy Graham taught, I think, and influenced all of the guitar um, players of his generation in that folk tradition, although his own creativity exceeds any narrow uh, attempt to, to confine it as folk music but he has I think I don't I've never asked Martin Carthy this and I don't know if he would agree but when I listen to both of them play I feel Martin Carthy's sense of time I, I call it stately time seems to have derived very much from from listening to to Davy Graham's command of, of the time mm. as, a, as a as a guitar player and Davy Graham of course transformed the repertoire of the acoustic guitar solo performance you know for a while I think anybody who aspired to be able to play guitar and perform it in that world would play one of his pieces as a kind of rite of passage you know Paul Simon recorded it and a number of others so Davy was of a Guyanese heritage in part his father I think was from the Isle of Skye his mother was sort of Guyanese royalty so it's just interesting to find these figures and to see how much they contributed and how organically they were positioned within a larger world of musicking mm. that is so con um, what's the word um, so fundamental to, to to Englishness perhaps we could say to the abyss of Englishness but then you know um, it's often hard for English people to stand up and sing an English song I, I can remember once many years ago being in in Denmark and uh, being in a conference of people from all over New Northern Europe, and at the end of the meal, when all the people who'd brought the food in were thanked, and uh, the moment came for feasting and song, everybody w looked around, and uh, you know the Norwegians got up and sang a Norwegian song, and the Icelandic people got up and sang an Icelandic song. The Swedes got up and sang a Swedish song. The Danish eventually <laughs> got up and sang a Danish song. And they, then they looked around at the English people and everybody was sort of shamefacedly looking at their shoes and unable to contribute anything whatsoever. Well, you mentioned nationalism earlier. What for you would be then an English song? 
What would have been the kind of well, song? we've we've had uh, we've had a, a, a moving and beautiful illustration of what those things have mutated into, mm -hmm. thanks to Angeline's performance this evening. Um, we could use that as as a kind of evidence. I mean, on the one hand, it's an English song. On the other hand, it's just music that people do mm -hmm. because that's what humans are like, and they tend to make music. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not kicking nationalism down the front steps so I can smuggle it in the back door. You know, I'm saying that actually it, 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 it's fugitive from, that the sound is fugitive sound from, from anything that nationalism wants to do with it. And, you know, when I was writing the book, I wrote after Black Atlantic, I'd, I'd got very interested in the things that the, what would become the, eventually become the apartheid regime in South Africa mm -hmm. were doing when they were trying to compose a white culture in their country in the 1930s, you know, because they, many of them wanted to support the Nazi project in Europe. They felt an affinity with it. And, uh, and they didn't know what the white culture really was. So they actually sent people, they sent researchers back to Europe to, to find it and, and bring it back for them. They didn't, they didn't feel that they had the authority or the confidence to even specify that. Mm. It's interesting. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think music, sound, these things are not uh, easily domesticated and maintained and confined within the box that nationalism prepares for them. Although, of course, nationalism will often try to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I want to bring us back to talking about the Black Atlantic because that's why we're here this evening. Um, and I was really struck yesterday, we watched the film of Sonia Dyer and in that, mm. she says that in the 21st century, the Black Atlantic is to be superseded by the Black Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And we've had some of the speakers this evening. Francoise was talking about militarism. We've spoken about capitalism. Mm. And rather than saying what's changed, mm. perhaps, in the Black Atlantic over the last you know, 30 years, I want to ask about those ideas as well, what you think mm. has changed. Well, I mean, the Black Manche is what springs to mind. I mean, I don't know, Ash, Ash will know this. I've only got a couple of cuttings and I didn't study them before, but weren't, weren't there a large landing of people that slapped at Torcross just the other day, came out of the water and were whisked away from the shore in a number of vehicles? I read about that. So actually, I remember when a friend of mine who studies narco-trafficking and people trafficking and other features of, of what I've come to call catabolic capitalism, capitalism that's feeding on itself, that's destroying itself, um, told me that the, the uh, criminal interests of Northern Europe were buying up parking spaces along the fr French coast co quietly. Uh, and, and so actually what interests me is less, you know, r ranting about Mare Nostrum and actually thinking a little bit about the water which is just at the bottom of the road here and who's coming across that water and what that means and, and how we respond to that. Because, you know, it's all very well you know, to talk as though we're everywhere simultaneously, but we, we actually aren't. And one, one thing that comes to, I think, comes across as morally and, and politically important for me is the lesson I learned from, from reading feminist philosophers who've emphasized the importance uh, of a, what they call a politics of location. Mm. It might be better described as a politics of locatedness or something like that. So, you know, let's, let's do, as the great Sven Lindquist um, urged us to do, let's dig where we actually stand. Let's dig where we stand. 
And that, that's not an alibi for, na for nationalism because you can be connected wherever you are and you must be uh, and understand the, the, the maybe planetary forces and other things, law, war, economic and political networks and webs that, that create the space you inhabit. But let's try and give some you know, priority to that immediate, urgent phenomenon because the effects of the climate crisis, as we know, are, are radically uneven. And, you know, the, the, present, the extraordinary presentation that we had so dramatically offered us yesterday accentuates the, the, radically, the combined but radically uneven character of this process. So we, could, we have to speak from somewhere and we have to be accountable for where we speak from. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, the black manche, if you want to call it that, is more important than thinking about Mare Nostrum. The crisis of Mare, my, my, you know, my dear friend and collaborator Isaac Julian made Western Union small boats in 2007. It's 16 years ago, yeah. you know. You know, Lampedusa. I mean, we, we have, a, you know, we can periodize it. We know the history, actually. So let's not, let's not f trap or be complicit with the idea that there's no history here. Let's, let's, let's grasp that history and be very clear about it. And let's be thinking about what's going on at the bottom of the, of the street, you know, because that, that is part of this process too. I'd like us to close with talking about the environment. But before we do that... Um, you mentioned about digging where we stand and Black Atlantic as a book focuses quite a lot on blacknesses as experienced in the US and I wonder mm. writing this now and, and from where we're speaking now what a book like that might look like if we were talking about experiences here in Plymouth whoa yeah, someone else will have to do that um, but it's not but it's not that those people aren't here they are yeah. they are they are here um, I mean you know I've had 30 years to think about everything that's wrong with my book. And, uh, <laughs> that wasn't my way of saying No, no, I, I'm just saying, I, I don't, you know, it is what it is, as the young people say. It is what it is. And it's had its own life for a long time. And all I can say about, about that is that I, you know, a few years ago, I began to read about open source software mm. and, and about how people... I, I mean, I'm sure you're all eager and enthusiastic users of the tools that Microsoft give you. I've, I'm a little bit more ambivalent about those tools, uh, or the spyware or whatever we, we think of those things are now. And, and I think the open source movement was really important to me because it, it meant that things were shared. It was a kind of commoning in a way. And so for me, anything that's useful in, in the residue of Black Atlantic is, it, is there's a little piece of open source co code that anyone, if anyone wants to use it, they can. What they do with it is fine. It's up to them, you know. So I don't feel, I used to, when I go in, went into bookshops, I used to always think the books I wrote were my property. But I, I found out very quickly that they, they weren't when I tried to leave with them in my bag. So, <laughs> so let me say that, that, that it is and isn't. Uh, something, I don't have a proprietary claim about it. And the person that wrote that book is long gone. So, you know, it has its own life. Mary Shelley used to describe um, um, her books as her hideous progeny, that they stalked off into the world like the monster in Frankenstein and had their own life, and there was nothing that anyone who created it could really do about that. So that's, you know, it's gone. I think, yeah. But thank you no. for, for making, making it be here.
I think a nicer way of looking at it might be that it's, it's common land or it's shared. Yeah, it's commoning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know that you started to engage with the environment and thinking about plants from your very own garden in London. And when you, um, when you won the Holberg Prize in 2019, you wore a tie that had, the extinction, had a reference to Extinction Rebellion. You've spoken before about planetary humanism mm. as well as pessimism. But as an academic, someone in your uh, position, you also speak about having an obligation to hope and to look into the future. Yeah, it's very unfashionable. I think these days because people are so um, saturated in kind of nihilistic mm. uh, responses and I, I think a lot of the you know the what would you call it um, um, fatalism I'd like to make a distinction between fatalism and pessimism and a lot of people who invoke the idea of pessimism as a response to um, the ontological challenges of the climate crisis, but also to the ontological problems and political and, and economic problems of, uh, of white supremacy, of, of capitalism, of militarism in the world. I think a lot of, a lot of those responses give pessimism a bad name, mm -hmm. you know? Actually, because what they do is they render the pessimist as the fatalist. And I want, to, I want to distinguish sharply between pessimism and fatalism. I am a, a cosmically a pessimist, mm -hmm. but I'm not a fatalist, if there's a distinction. And my guidance or my, my sort of, you know, understanding of what pessimism, you know, in, in, in the history of, of, of suffering that we kind of take for granted sometimes too much in these kinds of gatherings, in it, that, that, yeah, I mean... It does, it, does, it does mean that we, we have to, um, what's the word? We, we mustn't give in to the lure of, of being fatalistic, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, 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 and so much of the time these days, I think the idea of, of the enslaved person is the kind of ultimate figure within that, within that world of fatalism. And, and I, I'm just sort of not, not sure about that. I think these, these ideas are things that do very much come from, from a kind of US situation where the, the world of settler colonialism is in every spatial and economic and um, 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 governmental uh, order around you wherever you are. And, and, and I think that's not the case in the same way here, even if those ideas were exported from here, exported from here by Humphrey Gilbert and co, who, you know, went off to Ireland and slaughtered everyone and stole their stuff and hacked their heads off and stuck them on pikes and then went to North America and slaughtered everyone and hacked their heads off and stuck them on pikes. I mean, we can't substitute ourselves for those figures from the past, you know. Mm. We're connected to them, but we aren't actually them. I think Michel Rothtriot, the Haitian historian, really emphasized this point. There's, there's a kind of morality about imagining yourself so um, hyper-similar to those injured figures from the past that you substitute yourself for those people. And for me, that's an immoral gesture. Because, you know, however, however however abject, however difficult, however frightful, and there are frightful, awful, terrible, unspeakable things going around, on around us. We, are, we aren't those people. We, we are someone else, and we have, other, 
we have other options and possibilities. So let's not delude ourselves into thinking that we are without hope. This episode was recorded live at the Black Atlantic Symposium in Plymouth, a series of talks and live performances celebrating the 30th anniversary of Paul Gilroy's formative text in November 2023. For more, listen to Ashish Gadiali, founding director of Radical Ecology and co-chair of the Black Atlantic Innovation Network, on the exhibition Against Apartheid, which ran at Cast in Plymouth until the 2nd of December 2023, as part of Open City, a season of decolonial art and public events presented with partners across southwest England. You'll find all the links in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.